Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at revenuecat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and with me today, RevenueCat CEO, Jacob Eiding. Our guest today is Vince Mayfield, co-founder and CEO of Talking Parents, an app that helps divorced or separated parents better manage communication and share responsibilities. On the podcast, we talk with Vince about the right way to raise prices, the painful lessons from picking the wrong tools, and why you should respond to every single app review. Vince, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I can't wait to chat. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, so I'm a huge fan. So it's amazing that I get to sit here and be on the cast with you. Awesome. And Jacob, freshly shorn. You look like a baby without your three-foot beard. Nobody respects me now because I'm cleanly shaven. I look like I'm <laughs> 13, but uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's nice to be For- back, everybody. I'm the same person. I Today, somebody on the street stopped me. I don't even know. And she was like, oh, you shaved. I was like, who are you? <laughs> That's pretty good. For those Small of you listening life. to the audio podcast, you'll have to check out YouTube and see the new and improved Jacob. Yeah. All right. So Vince, I wanted to kick things off talking about the story of Talking Parents and how you went from a consultancy where you were grinding for that next client and just always doing work for other people, always billing hourly or project. And the way you told it to me when we were chatting before the podcast is that you wanted to make money while you slept. (laughs) And it's pretty great that you went from a consultancy where you were just grinding for those next clients to a $10 million a year ARR business, which is just incredible. So start me off with what was that motivation and how did you start that process of going from an agency to being a product company? So my business partner, Lewis Erickson, we've been best friends since middle school. So we've known each other a long time. We kind of decided we wanted to go off and start doing custom software development. And so we developed this professional services organization. About year nine, we made Inc. 5000 list. And we kind of realized that we had a business now. We didn't have a hobby anymore and that we really needed to think differently. We met this guy named Stephen Nixon. And Stephen had graduated from law school and was a private practice as an attorney. He'd been a prosecutor. He'd been a defense attorney. And he was in this practice with his brother. And his brother was a family law attorney. So Stephen shows up into court after his brother gets tapped to be a magistrate and there's two co-parents and they're going back and forth over this record of communications, which one's got text messages in one hand and Facebook posts and emails and they're going back and forth and the judge is annoyed and both attorneys are racking up the hours. And so the judge finally throws it back and says, okay, you guys go off on y'alls and you guys work this out and then come back to me. So Steven sort of came up with this idea to build this app. So he hired some guy working out of his house and I had him build it and then got about a thousand people using it. And so he realized, hey, 
this is on servers inside of this guy's house. And when I call him, he's not always responsive. So he starts to get worried because judges are ordering people onto the software and he's afraid that it's going to come tumbling down or something. So he stops into the Bank of America building where we're at and says, hey, I want you to take a look at this app. We go in and we look at this app and we come back and we say, hey, man, this wasn't built to scale. It's kind of held together with bailing wire and duct tape. But we think the idea is really cool. What would you think about us forming a whole new company and let's rebuild this thing so that it will scale? And so we came together and started to figure out how do we use the professional services to mutually support the app and then build the app up and take it from there. How did that go transitioning from thinking like a hired gun to now we've got this product. I think there's a lot of agencies out there who try and make the jump, but it really is a different skill set. How did that part of the transition go for the BitWizards now Talking Parents crew? It's a difficult transition. And I will tell you for the first couple of years, we didn't have the app monetized as far as a product, we were thinking about, you know, when you build custom software, you're just building things and getting them done and you're pulling in pieces and putting it together. It may or may not need to scale to the level that this app did. And so when we started bringing in third party components and stuff like that, we really hadn't thought through all the things in the very beginning. And that created some technical debt and really got us to start reworking things that we had already done before as we were trying to get that right product market fit. And I think the other thing that was different for us was we didn't understand really who our customer was in the beginning. You're an agency. You're used to having a customer who tells you what to do. You're not as deep yeah. in the product. You're not having to think who's our customer. It's like, well, I mean, you know, who your, your customer is the person who's short on software development, right? That's yeah. ultimately, I mean, your customer, right? Surely you need to align your goals with theirs. But even the best person who wants to do the best by everybody is going to follow their like most direct incentive, which is very different. I was wondering, like, before you had this opportunity land in your lap, was this a goal for you to bring in to like own your own product? And this was just an opportunity. It just was like right time, right moment. Like, let's do this. Or had you tried to do this transition? Was this like a strategic thing or just something like opportunistic? When you're in a custom software business, everybody comes to you and say, hey, I got an idea and we want you to build it for us, but we don't have any money. So you build it and we'll give you a piece of it. And we quickly learned that our job was to be software engineers and not figure out somebody's business model or how they were going to work. But we did have a couple of things that we had attempted. One of them was a product where we became the sole reseller of it online. We built the website, did the stuff, but it was actual physical product that had to be shipped. It was called Tailgater Carrier. And so we did that for a couple of years. We invested and it didn't work out. We had to basically shut it down working with another group of guys. And we knew we were just looking for that right thing that seemed like it made the right fit and that we could take and make money while we we're sleeping. Yeah. I mean, I don't know all the details, but when he came to you and he says like, this thing's getting out of control, I can't handle the demand. That, that's all, probably already product market fit, right? <laughs> like, yeah. At that point, right? Like people always ask like, how do I know I have product market fit? And there's varying levels. There's different definitions of market, right? And how well the fit is in there. But you know, that moment when the product is growing despite all of the problems, right? That's usually the definition that there's something there. So whether you consciously knew it or not, like that was the right moment. And it sounds like there was probably a natural limit to where this would go without your expertise, right? Without some real engineering. I mean, I think it's really hard. This echoes against advice I've gotten and heard from, you know, investors in my world and stuff about 
it's just really hard to own a product and build a product without in-house engineering, without being somebody in the driver's seat who's technical enough to drive the product forward. And this is a good example of where somebody was short on that expertise and probably would have been limited in how far they could take it. Yeah. And I think besides just the product market fit and understanding and having somebody that could do the software engineering and work right there with you, I think another side of it was is that Lewis and I had already taken a lot of risk. Our business had been in business for 10 years at that point. Now we're at 25 years for BitWizards. And Stephen came from the law arena where they're all in the risk mitigation business, right? And so you had a couple of entrepreneurs and people that understood that aspect of it and what it meant to take risks. And we were able to work with Stephen and sort of get him outside his comfort zone so that we could scale this and make it go well. So it was really mutually beneficial. We really all fit together well. But I will tell you, we thought we understood who our customer was in the beginning, but we really didn't. And so that's kind of a good segue because we thought our customer was the court system. Yeah, good luck selling SaaS to the court system. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, at least you know where they are. Yeah. <laughs> but if you go knocking on their door, they don't look kindly upon that, I guess is uh, probably also true. Well, and they also only want to talk to other people in their profession. You know, it's kind of like a lot of regulated industries. They've got older technology and things like that. But we knew that they were a channel or an influencer. So initially, we made the application free. And Stephen thought we were going to monetize through Google AdSense. And so we came to the conclusion pretty quickly. I said, hey, look, everybody in that courtroom's making money. We've got to make money to scale this thing so that we can fuel it and build the features and functions that the customers want. But our customer isn't the court system. So we changed and decided to monetize based upon the apps and get a subscription model going. And when we did that and put the focus in the customer and the people that were actually giving us money. In fact, I had a professor at Notre Dame that told me, he said, strategically, you know who it is. They're the person that gives you money. They're the ones that are in the driver's seat. It's a, so It's amazing how we have to, sometimes we have to go learn these lessons from fancy professors, but it's like, absolutely. It's like right in front of you, right? So when you say customers, you're talking about the parents, right? Like the folks that are in a co-parenting arrangement. That's absolutely correct. In those early days, when you introduced a subscription, you still did use a freemium model, right? So tell me about your decision making around, okay, this is never going to scale big enough to make meaningful money on ads. We're going to use subscriptions, but we need some hook. So how did you think about freemium early? And then I'd actually want to go through the different phases of your freemium strategy as well. Well, Stephen thought that the basic messaging part of what we were doing was the core item. And we were already giving that away for free through the freemium model. So we said, you know, when we decided to monetize, you got to remember this is 09, 010, 11, right? And apps are coming out. And so we're like, okay, so we're going to build some apps and apps have notifications, which you didn't really have them very well over the web. So it started as a web app. It was, yes. it was like a full web experience before. Okay, Exactly. And so we said, okay, so now we're going to give the mobile apps and the incentive is going to be, well, if you want to use mobile apps, then we're going to charge you for that on a subscription basis. And there was some discussion that went back and forth about whether we were going to charge a one-time fee and what the price point was. And I mean, and at that point in time, it was like the market was not really there for charging yeah. consumer subscriptions on mobile. Like, I don't even think that technically had any subscriptions on the App Store until 11 or 12, till it was... Every Everybody was able to use it. 
Yeah. And so we went through a lot of argument back and forth about how to do that. And then when we finally did get it monetized and get it on a subscription, it was closer to 2015 when we finally got that working the way it needed to work. So we probably burned through close to a million dollars revamping the app, starting to market. We were literally sending Steven out around the country on an airplane to talk to judges and clerks of court and stuff. Were you not monetizing at all through that period? No, not really. All we were doing then, we didn't really start monetizing till the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, other than through the Google AdSense revenue. Oh, so you did have a little bit of that. I mean, normally AdSense as a strategy or ads as a strategy doesn't really work unless you're mass, mass market. But then I was thinking like, this kind of could be mass, mass market, right? Like there's got to be millions of people in this arrangement, right? That could potentially use a co-parenting app. Yeah. And they weren't necessarily divorced. They could have had a kid together and and never been married. It's got to be a bigger market than, I mean, everybody could probably take more than two hands to name people they know in this situation, right? Which is a larger addressable market than a lot of <laughs> like a lot of apps we talked to, right? So you had that going for you. I don't think it was totally crazy, but you guys were pouring R&D budget into this thing. Like, Were you like pouring effort into the app for those five years? Like as you were just building no. out functionality? Was it kind of on the back burner or like, how were you approaching it? We first revamped the web app and then we went in and started doing the mobile apps on the latter part after a lot of discussion. And some of the things that we did early on that were really important, we started asking customers, at least surveying them and saying, okay, what do you want? What would you pay for? What features or functions do you like? How can you know this be better for you? It was pretty rudimentary, nothing like what's available today. I was just simply a couple of software engineers and a legal guy sitting in a room saying, okay, well, what kind of questions do we want to ask our customers? So we started to get that survey data back and figure out and solidify what we wanted. And when we released the first app, I personally felt like we were charging too little for it, which caused some problems later on, because as we started to add more value and more functionality and figure out how to build out our tiers and give customers a compelling reason to not only utilize the app, but stay on we had to deal with some of that legacy stuff that we were doing from before. When your app is free, now you're charging $4.99. And then later on, you want to charge them $9.99. And now we have two tiers where it's $9.99 and $24.99. And so how do you manage customer expectations? How do you deliver the value to them so that they feel like that they're getting something unique and that they're willing to continue to pay for and stick with you? When the app had fewer features and didn't have as big an audience and product market fit, do you not think maybe... It was the right option to start at a lower price. So you're talking about tech debt in that the price was lower and having to transition to a higher price. It's kind of a combination of tech debt because you have to manage the subscriptions and like business debt of like, we used to be a different app. Now we've added all these features. But do you think maybe that was actually a better staging of the app to start low and then move forward versus do you think you could have gotten $25 a month in those early days? Like, is the regret that you should have been charging 25 from the beginning? Do you think you really could have done that? I think we could have monetized sooner. I'd like to tell you that what we did was genius and it all worked out the way we wanted to <laughs> no, work you're out. you're supposed to. That's what you do when you're taking your victory lap, that it yeah. was all clear the whole time through your genius. You but know? the reality is, is that we stumbled through it and we just made mistakes. And you know there was a lot of argument and discussion and back and forth. And there were some lean times where you know, I had to tell Steven at one point, I said, hey, I can't continue to pay you a salary right now. Times are lean in the professional services realm. So monetization has to be a strategy and has to be something important that we're doing. 
And I would say that from 09 to probably 15, although we rebuilt the web app, we dabbled. And it really wasn't until 15 that we got things monetized and really started getting them going. And then we started adding in more features and that type of stuff. It was stressful. They got better as we made money. You know, they say money can solve (laughs) problems. When you're pulling up by your bootstraps, it does. And the smart use of that money and making the right bets is what's important. On the point of starting low and going high versus starting high and going low, the advice I always give is start high because like the worst case scenario is nobody buys it, right? (laughs) And then you're giving people a discount, right? Versus the flip side is you give everybody some price that's way under the true value. You've now set the expectation that like, hey, this is only worth $4.99 a month which I would imagine is a fairly high retention user base like yours, like for some apps that are churn and burn, I use the word churn and burn with love, right? Apps that maybe don't like focus on super long-term retention. Like you can more freely experiment with prices because your customers are kind of cycling in and out. But for an app where the expectation might be that somebody uses you for 18 years, right? Or some really long period of time, setting that expectation matters, right? Because you're going to have that customer relationship for a while. So yeah, normally I'm like, oh, just respect your existing users, but feel free to mess around. But in a case where you might have a longer term base, like you might want to be more careful. I just find it's always easier to make things cheaper. Like nobody gets mad at you, right? You're going to have the same amount of tech debt and business debt by like reducing a price. You're going to lose money potentially from existing users if you bring them down. But like at least the emotional labor is less, right? <laughs> when you're Absolutely. like lowering the price and you're still trying to find that optimum, right? You're still solving the same problem. You're just coming from a different starting point on the curve. But when you have like really deep product market fit and you've built out all those features, then you do actually have very few people who complain when you raise the price. Now that's the next part of the story I wanted to get to is that you did end up raising the price on all of your existing subscribers. Tell me about how you planned that and then how did it go? Again, at the beginning, we didn't have a lot of instrumentation and we weren't really sure. To Jacob's point, the people that are with us are predominantly court ordered. So raising prices when it's already low is tricky because they're already mad because they're typically in a co-parenting relationship. Not all, but some of them are. So it's a very delicate matter to raise prices and go forward. We were actually surprised. We said, okay, well, if we lose half of our customers as we raise the price from $4.99 to $9.99, what is that going to do to our revenue? What's going to happen? And I've been to some pricing seminars and stuff like that and talked to some different people. And I said, there's no way that's going to happen, right? So we just sort of planned that we would lose at least half. And what we were presently surprised is that we got a few complaints, but actually people understood that when we rolled it out, we added additional value. So when we first rolled it out, our 999 plan, we added in what we call accountable calling, which allowed people to be able to make phone calls and have it be transcribed and made a part of the record. So it was more than just the messaging that was going back and forth over or keying it in. And so every time we've raised prices or every time we've busted out to tears, we've made sure that we've bundled that with a group of value that somebody would get that the customers had asked for from us surveying them. So we could say, hey, look, yes, we're raising prices, but we're bringing you new features and functions that you asked us for. And we're listening to what you're having to say, and we're making sure that it's a value to you. So turns out, We maybe lost a quarter or so, and maybe some of that was transitional while they were mad and then they came back because some of them, and I would probably venture to say it's probably about a 60-40 split, about 60% are court ordered, about 40% are not. But we always offered a free version. If you wanted to use the web version, 
you could get it for free. So we said, okay, if you don't want to pay for the extra features here, you can always go back to the free version and you can and use that. And that, that satisfies court orders in most cases? Yes, sir. That's a huge lesson right there, though, that I think a lot of subscription apps, now that you can more easily raise prices, are not heating. If you're Netflix, yeah, you can like increase the price 25% just because you're Netflix and people are going to stay subscribed. But bundling any price raise with like clear additional value, I think was I mean, that's super just product, smart. That's probably just good a big, product marketing, right? It's like you probably already shipped some of But there's a lot of, of stuff, apps that right? are I, yeah, raising I know. prices yeah, yeah. and not doing I mean, that. it goes back to um, you know something we've been thinking about at Revenue Cut a lot recently. It's just like negotiation tactics. And like as we're closing deals, like how do we create non-controversial interactions with customers as we're trying to like come to a partnership agreement? And there's certain ways you can present, you know, it's pricing, it's all pricing, right? It's like presentation of pricing. It's so psychological already. You have as an app developer, a lot of surface area to influence that psychological experience. If you say like increased price, you know, an increased price with an increase in delivered value is not actually a net loss for people, right? They can opt out on a liquidity basis, like that surplus value for me, I do not need, right? And they can choose to opt out. But, you know, in most cases, you know, if you're surveying users and what you think of is good, then what you're building is hitting their needs. That's not going to be the case, right? When were y'all doing this? I guess, was it recently? So we've made some additional changes when we went to the $24.99 tier. That happened at the end of 2022. Okay. So we've now been doing it right about a year and about six months or so. But that's a second tier, right? So you have the $9.99 tier. So you doubled the price from $4.99 to $9.99. But now you have the option in the app to get the 99.9 tier or the 24.99 tier, correct? That's correct. Can you talk a little bit about like, what did you bundle into that? Like, what are you targeting with that tier? So the way the free tier worked is that we have the record. And so when you want to go to court, then you buy a copy of the record from us. We will either give you a digital copy or you can download it as a PDF, which a lot of courts won't take. And then the other option is to do a printed copy. So we would actually print them out, bind them, do an affidavit, and then ship them to them. When we went to the 999 tier from the 499 tier, we basically structured it so that you got a deeper discount on printed records because printed records cost us a significant amount of labor and effort to go and do it. But then we also added in calling. And then when we went to our 2499 tier, we added in video calling. And it's not just calling there. You got to keep in mind that what we're doing is we're recording the call. We're transcribing it. We're making it a part of the record. We're breaking apart the channels so that you can see all of them. And then it's put in a format that if you do go to court, the court can actually see how it's all broken down by dates and conversations. So what somebody said, if you call your spouse out or a former spouse out in there and say something ugly, well, the court's going to see that, right? So the idea is that it's reinforcing people to be civil. And so we carefully picked each one of those items. So video calling is expensive for us because, you know, you've got to store that video and you've got to store that audio. So we made it so that they got a bundle of minutes and a bundle of time that made really sense. And then we could take it up each level as we went forward. So that was the primary. Again, it was like adding and creating value, right? And then yes. pricing that value, actually capturing that created value. Which is, you know, five times what your original price point was right now for that new service. But depending on the situation that you're in, if you think about a tool that's going to allow you, you know, if you're in a contentious co-parenting situation or whatever, allow you that freedom to video communicate makes a lot of sense. And so how has that been? Because I find like having multiple, we have multiple pricing tiers here and like 
old ones and new ones. And I find it to be like super hard to like wrap my head around. How did adding tiering make your lives better or worse, potentially more complicated? I don't know that it made it more complicated. I think what it organized our customers around people that understood what we were doing and got the value and were willing to pay the higher price point to it. So we cater to all the customers, but we added other features in too. I didn't mention this one, but we actually have accountable payments. So they can make payments for child support or alimony and it's all tracked and it's all part of the system. And you're at the 999, we charge less for that because there is some per transaction charges for us. And then we charge even less when you're at the 2499 tier. So I don't know that it created a big problem for us. I think the bigger problem for us was trying to extricate the old 499 customers and get them up to the new level. It's like you always said, it's harder to charge people more money than it is to reduce the cost, right? Yeah, I mean, that $20 gap is massive, right? For that $5 user, if you're staring and being like, well, I get this for five, it may not be five times the value, right? But it still might be worth it, if that makes sense to them. Yeah, and interestingly, what we found out was is that most of our Apple users were on the higher tier. You know, if you think about it, you pay a thousand or almost yeah. two grand now for an iPhone with all the stuff on it. We found that we had more customers over in that realm and we could see where certain customers were more price conscious. Vince, when you're talking about the pricing and $25 a month on the premium tier and like how much value you're having to deliver, it's just reminding me how much opportunity there still is for subscription apps to deliver a ton of value and charge for that value. I think of Speechify the Texas speech app, they charge $120 a year. And I mean, a couple of years back, I was like, holy crap, that's really expensive, but it delivers a ton of value. And for those of you listening to the podcast, there's a lot of nuances in talking parents business. It's not going to apply to your specific business, but you should be looking for these opportunities to layer on deeper and deeper value because there is still so much opportunity to increase the value you're delivering and then actually charge for it because 25 bucks a month for a consumer subscription app, but you're delivering that kind of value. You're delivering sophisticated video, audio, transcriptions, all that kind of stuff. And so, or affidavits. I want, one thing I wanted to ask you, Vince. So like if one parent has a subscription, does the other one get access to features or is it all for like one side of the match? It's one side, but it gives the other parent a reason or incentive to maybe want to go to the next level. So if they're at the 999 tier, they'll get calling, but they have to be at the 2499 tier if they want to get video. So one parent may have video and the other one may not, or maybe they want to have a video chat with their kid where the other parent doesn't necessarily have that capability. We're trying to reinforce where that value is and get them to move up the chain there and subscribe at that particular level. But if they can't afford it and it's not at their level, they can get the features at the level there. So even at the free level, you know, there's ways for a premium person to talk to somebody at the free level. And some of the things that we're talking about doing is figuring out a way to let one co-parent pay for the other co-parent. Mm, which is complicated. It, it is. <laughs> yeah, because, land, yeah. Yeah. Because some people think that, well, first of all, the parents don't want to be controlled by the other co-parent, right? So there's some nuances about what we have to do to help navigate this. But I want to make one point. 
about what David was talking about with value. And that's that, you know, one of the things that we found about people is that they like to compartmentalize elements of their life and they don't want to have a million apps, right? And so co-parenting is a very important aspect. You're shepherding young lives between two people and, and you're trying to keep that harmonious and keep yourself out of court. The value that talking parents brings there is it's accountability across all those communication mediums into a record that can be utilized in court and so at each level, the parents can pick and choose the features of the values that matter the most to them and then that they're willing to pay for in order to help them manage this. Like I said, we noticed that some of our less price conscious customers, typically on Apple, you got two co-parents, one on each side paying $24.99 for it. But I would also say it also costs us a lot of money to deliver that, right? There's consumables there that I have to pay for in my unit and in my economic cost. And so it's priced in a way that allows us to deliver that premium experience for them at a price point that they're willing to pay for and that I can cover the cost and still make money. You were talking about nudging those parents who aren't paying to pay, and now you need both parents involved. And I imagine there's a lot to understanding the usage of the app. How do you instrument that? How do you figure out what your customers need so initially, I told you we did it. It's pretty rudimentary. We did surveying and survey monkey and that type of thing. There was a lot of discussion about what we thought, and we kept telling ourselves, and especially when I hired my new director of marketing, Heather Ruiz, she came in from the business to consumer field. And you know, that's different, obviously, from B to B. It's a different mindset and a different way that you market. And she really solidified that we had to get back some instrumentation and really, truly instrument the app and understand the customer journey, not over instrument it, but basically have the things that so we understood what that was. We started with adjust, but the problem with the justice is that it's centered around that app download. And for us, that isn't a conversion point from us. They can download the app, but it's not effective until they match with a co-parent and they're talking. We put Firebase in place. And then we started looking at and sort of did a fly off to see what do we need for a platform? And we looked around and we saw that everybody's using segment, right? We kept hearing segment over and over again. And when my software engineers looked at it, they're like, hooray, it's a giant database that stores a bunch of stuff in it and we can aggregate it and make it anything we want. And my marketers went, time out. We don't want to be building UIs and having to integrate with Tableau or Power BI or something like that. We need a more accurate picture across all the platforms. So we ended up boiling it down between Segment and a product called Bloomreach. Bloomreach is a customer data platform, which is a little bit different because we're having these problems that are happening right now with privacy and with third party. And so this allows us to have basically first party data. We believe that first party data is king and it allows us to map what's going on with the people that come to our website and then track our customers as they go through that journey. So we did all that instrumentation in the last two years, and it's really paying dividends and helping us understand how our customers think and what they do. And in addition to that, we've also created sort of a community where we're giving back something more than just the app. So some of the things that we're doing is like our coffee and co-parenting, and we're bringing in experts like Dr. Ramadi or Mark Pearson, who's a renowned negotiator and counselor and an influencer like Caroline Kelly. 
and brought them in to provide that value to our customers through our coffee and co-parenting so that they felt like they were getting is that something a, is more that a than... video series or what's coffee and co-parenting? So coffee and co-parenting is like webinars that we offer periodically. And then we bring these experts in and provide that. They'll take over our social media or take over the blogs and bring stuff in and interact with the customers. And you were mentioning that in relation to Bloomreach. So is that something you're actually tracking in Bloomreach to understand kind of the impact of that community-based marketing, basically? Absolutely. So it's tied into our social media. It's tied into all of our advertising. So all somebody has to do is come to our site once or one of our landing pages, and then we can track their history and what they're doing over time. And then we know when they convert and what that journey looks like for them. Deciding on Bloomreach and doing a bake-off can be a challenging prospect with engineering, battling with marketing, <laughs> battling with the business team, and got pricing and who's going to lead and all that kind of stuff. How has that gone as you've evolved the tooling, like going from one tool to another and figuring out like what's actually going to work best for your business? We've made some mistakes as we've gone through this. Um, <laughs> Being software engineers and, you know, having an attorney as part of the company, being a little more risk averse on things, you know, we always looked at the what was the cheapest and what was the easiest to integrate, right? From a software engineering perspective and cost, there's a couple instances where that kind of burned us. And so one of the is that we have an audio translation service and the company that we use now is called Assembly AI, but we had a previous one that was a startup company. And we didn't pay particular attention to the unit economics there, and we didn't pay particular attention to how it might scale. And so what ended up happening is, is that we started having problems with transcription and we started having disconnections from their service. And we had to go back and we found that cheaper isn't always better, right? So we actually made this transition to assembly. We cut our cost in half. And we got more features and functionality out of it because instead of they would charge us for each channel that we were transcribing, whereas under the new system, it charged us under dual channel and allowed us to go through. So the learning from that is to make sure that you understand clearly what the unit economics are, what it's going to do to your cost of goods sold, and to make sure that you're not, you know, from a software engineering point, it sounds cool that we're going to hook up with another startup company. But if they can't scale when you're scaling, you've just added a problem to your scaling. And we've had to go back and re-engineer as a result of that. And it's happened in more than one occasion. I have to imagine on all the trans... I mean, this assembly AI sounds like it's probably new. I'd imagine the costs are going to come down on transcription and stuff right now because there's just so much innovation in AI, audio, video stuff right now. There is. Plus, it handles multi-language, which is another feature and mm. function that we want to put in. But I have to put some props in there. You know, Revenue Cat was the first tooling that we integrated to basically help us manage our subscriptions. We tried to build that ourselves, and it was a huge mistake. It was a debacle. We were running around <laughs> chasing our tail. Every time Apple would change something or every time Google would change something, it was just a nightmare. Now we chase our tails for you. That's how it works. <laughs> exactly. And the price doesn't go up when that happens. So that's the benefit. It's de-risked. Exactly. Well, I mean, you scale with us as we scale. And so that's what I'm talking about, paying attention yeah. to how that works. And that was the first. And then I mentioned Assembly AI. The other one was when we had another startup that we worked with to help us with our video, right? When we were doing our calling, it was our flagship feature. We underestimated a little bit what the cost was going to be to store the video over the long haul. 
we have some unique things with the co-parents that we want to mask location and that type of thing and mask the phone numbers. And, you know, we have issues of trying to mux all that together. And so we want this other company and they were great. They're really nice. But we started having problems with our flagship feature and we had compared them to Twilio and we decided we're going to go back with this new startup and we're going to help them out. We're going to work with us and go forward. But the reality is they couldn't scale with us. And so we ended up making the transition to Twilio. And the advantage there is now I've got a global network at scale that I can actually integrate in with. So I would tell other founders, if you're a software engineer by trade, you know, your tendency is I want to build it myself. And the answer is don't try to build it yourself. You find a best in class don't chintz on the money and make sure you pay particular attention to the unit economics. The other thing that I would say that it's really important is I tell my engineers all the time, why are you spinning your heels on that? Call Revenue Cat or call <laughs> Twilio, right? This is why we pay for support, right? Mm. These are the guys who are the experts in their product. Let's utilize that. And I don't mind paying some extra money to be able to have that because if I do that, then my engineers are off developing new features or yeah. functions for my you know, customers. That have a higher ROI. I think this is something that I'm glad. It sounds like you guys have made that transition. I see a lot of companies that are, I don't want to describe it. They're somewhat dogmatic about it, right? About never taking things from the outside. And there, there's legal reasons, right? There's risks you just identified there. But like, Folks always like ignore, they over-index on the risk of the startup that goes out of business, which can be mitigated, right? With a, a couple of easy checks. Like I'll say this for folks evaluating Revenue Cat or any tool. If the company's not public, if they're public, you can just look at their financial position, right? You can see how much cash they have. You can kind of understand their solvency. If they're private, if it's a startup, ask. And if the salesperson will tell you, say like, let me talk to your founder. I want to know what you, like how much money you guys have. We do fewer of those conversations now, but in the early days, I was like, had to get on a lot of phone calls and be like, listen, I only have $700,000 in the bank, but here's my plan, right? Like we're, <laughs> we're settled. Like if I had to, you know, if we needed to lean back, we'd be profitable. Like the business is, you know, it, which was, hasn't always been the case for a lot of dev tools, right? It's really good to hear that, you know, you've opened up to that because like, I think a lot of people do themselves a disservice. Like the whole economy and since the middle ages is based on, not even pre-middle ages, since basically the agrarian revolution has been based on specialization, right? And we've entered into this period where with software, it can happen at like a different way, right? Like specialized craftspeople can be trading information in real time and then metering and exchanging that. And that's kind of what's caused the explosion in value creation that we've seen over the last 2000 or 10 thousand years so to deny that and be like oh we're gonna build everything in-house like denies something that's been working really well again conditioned on the risks right conditioned on doing what's right for your business and and then also you learn how to do good vendor integration right where you're defending yourself a little bit you're being like yeah we're gonna put this in we're gonna isolate it a little bit so that we have that optionality if this vendor doesn't work out for us we can easily switch over to another or we can bring it in-house if we have to and stuff like that your R&D dollars should be going into IP, which beats the market, right? Like, which is creating extra margin and extra value for your customers. Because like just solving the base needs of the business probably isn't going to bring a big return for that dollars. Absolutely. And I have a lot of scars to prove that it took me a long time <laughs> to learn that. One of the frustrating things, though, about the subscription app industry specifically, you said you should just go with best-in-class tooling. But so many of the best in class toolings that I would generally recommend to, you know, folks just starting out, you got to start off with like a thirty, fifty thousand dollar a year enterprise plan to even start integrating the tool. 
And I wish some of these bigger kind of best in class companies like Arable and Braze on the customer journey and customer data platform side, and even some of the bigger like MMPs and other things like that. I wish there were more companies open to that kind of let us start with you and grow with you instead of like, you can't even implement the solution. Oh, I never, I David, I do not want to know if we lose money pay. on our long tail. Like, don't tell me <laughs> <laughs> because I do it out of a moral imperative, right? I have the belief that long-term it will net out, right? But, but a lot of these companies, they just, because typically those 50K and up, those enterprise contracts, like you can build a go-to-market motion around that and it's typically pretty efficient and relatively easy to grow compared to like a bottoms-up motion might take forever and, and be very costly. Yeah. So. And Twilio is a good example though of like, there are still tools out there that charge on unit economics that can work if you're delivering value, making it, you know, you scale with them. You don't have to sign a $60,000 plan just to get started. But yeah, I wish everybody could just start with best in class tools. So it's a trade-off Mission you know, when you're us, really early on. You can't always start with best in class tools, but it's cool to hear that you're actually still using Firebase because that's something a lot of folks start out with and then eventually move on to a mixed panel, an amplitude, a segment or something like that. But at least there are tools like Firebase where maybe they're not best in class at everything, but they're good enough to take talking parents to 10 million in ARR. Absolutely. I think the key thing there for those that can't necessarily get the best in class in the beginning because you just can't afford to do it is just follow good software engineering techniques in the way that you can actually pull stuff out as you go. Because the app you are when you're in your first year versus your second or third year, you're going to iterate several times. If I had a dollar for every time we changed around technology or kind of did something, and I think that was the benefit of us going back and re-engineering it in the first place, was it allowed us to do that quicker. I'm not saying it's not problematic. It is. There are certain paradigms that we haven't been able to pull out, but we were able to integrate certain things in and then switch them out because we designed them properly so that if we had to go from one transcription service to another, we could. If we went from one video provider to another, we could. And what some founders do is they get in a big hurry. It's hurry up and get it to market as quickly as I can, which I understand. But at our point, we kind of already knew that we had a market and a fit. And I think as we were going through, we were making sure that what we could do would scale and that we could change things out as we moved along. We do need to start wrapping up, but I want to do a quick lightning round because I think you have some really insightful points here. With Talking Parents, I know customer service is super important and I don't think enough apps take that super seriously. So give us the 90 second, why do you care about support? And then how does that actually translate into how you run your business and how your customers respond? Well, I'll say first and foremost, that I think that every experience that somebody has with your brand sets a mental image of who you are in it. And so, you know, if I'm going to charge a premium price, then they need to have premium support, right? One of the things that we've done that I think is absolutely important to us, and we didn't do it in the beginning, and we've only been doing it in the last year and a half, is that on app reviews, we go in and, and reply to every app review with a human response, right? Even if somebody's just complaining just to complain or they're complaining about their co-parent relationship or something, it has nothing to do with the app. But I want my people, I have my marketing team meets once a week with my customer experience team, and they respond to all of those and, you know, obviously Google gives us less characters than say Apple does, but people then feel like they're heard and you're not writing it to answer just that person. You're writing it for everybody that comes behind it. And if you've got a thoughtful, reasonable answer that empathizes with that particular person, then 
there's more of a chance that they're going to come back and they're going to think highly of your app. And I would say we do the same thing with our app. It's email support only right now. But one of the things that we're thinking about doing for our higher tiers is giving a phone support. And if we do that, we'll add that in and treat it with the same care. So our thing is about radical focus on the customer. Because again, as I said before, they're the ones that are paying us for the service. And so if they feel like they're heard and that we're listening to them, they're going to continue to stay on subscription with us. And we're going to have great retention rates. It's amazing. David, this is the whole point of this whole project. People making software yeah. that helps people and then paying for it. It's the dream. That's all we want, right? It goes back <laughs> to the, you know, your customers who pays yeah. you. It's true, right? And reflecting on you just said, Vince, about our own support, we provide email support to anybody. You just signed up. You'll never make us a dollar all the way up to our biggest customers. Obviously, there's some gradations there and we kind of like adjust resourcing depending, but we always want to get back to people within a few hours, no matter if they're just lost and trying to figure out how to do it. And the reason being is because it goes back to what you said. It's It builds that brand, right? It's like we're establishing a relationship with a community of users and how you react to them and how you're able to treat them, whether it's visible or not or whatever, they'll tell their friends really matters and really compounds, especially when you're serving like you guys, a somewhat niche community, you have to maintain that. Like people have to have a high NPS of talking parents. If you want your business to take off in a community where people are probably exchanging information a lot. So it's why I don't look at the unit economics. I don't want to know. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, you were talking earlier, Vince, about making sure on tooling, you know, the unit economics. And, and again, I think too many apps sleep on how important customer success can be to building a great app business. And so I think it's really great. That's a huge focus for talking parents. And even if it is a quote unquote money loser in the like, hour by hour unit economics, it's not a money loser in the long run. So it's really cool that you're focused on that. Yeah, I consider it table stakes. If you're cost going to do business, right? yeah, it's a cost of doing business. And when we hire people, we try to look for people that have a lot of empathy because it's a tough job, right? To oh, answer I things I mean, to we, the general public. <laughs> we complain about, you know, iOS developers sometimes being cantankerous and whatnot. I can't imagine like people already potentially where they're coming from, why they ended up in that app. And then they're having a frustrating moment. Like I, I've got to imagine your customer experience team has to be a very special kind of person. Yeah. And I think there's an altruistic nature to all of us here because a lot of the people in the company are co-parents. And so they understand what it's like to be in that environment. We want to make co-parenting better. We want to make people's lives better. There's an altruistic notion to this. I mean, obviously we want to make money. We got to do that to stay in business. But we also believe that our app is delivering value that makes people's lives better. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, helping kids, right. In a potentially tough situation. You make me want to wear, you guys any jobs open? Like I'm just <laughs> kind of excited. It's a good mission. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, actually, do you have any jobs open? We need to wrap. And if there's anything else you wanted to share as we wrap up. Well, we're always hiring. I have a, a thing that I'm always be hiring, looking for good talent, good people. So I would love for people to come check us out at talkingparents.com. And we try to find a spot for good folks if we can make it work and from the economic standpoint. Awesome. Well, Vince, thanks so much for joining us. It was a fascinating conversation, fascinating business. I got to talk to you for like an hour and a half <laughs> uh, before the podcast and just such a fascinating business and really great, all the insights that you shared today. So thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate both of you having me on today. I'm honored. Thank you, Jacob. Right. Thank you, <laughs> David. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. 
You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.